Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics here at Talbot School of Theology on the campus of Biola University. Sean is uh, normally my co-host, but he was called to emergency jury duty this afternoon, so uh, he will not be with us, uh, which is too bad because uh, he was especially looking forward to our guest, Dr. Albert Moeller, who is president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, the place where Sean got his Ph.D. from. Uh, Dr. Moeller, we're really delighted to have you with us. Uh, let me say a little bit more, just introduce him. Uh, he has been called by The Economist magazine, one of America's most influential evangelicals, uh, and by Time magazine, the reigning intellectual of the evangelical movement. He's got a couple, couple of his own podcasts that you might be interested in, both uh, called The Briefing and Thinking in Public. He's got more books out than we can... Uh, and we have time to introduce, but he's appeared on lots of mainstream media outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, the Today Show, Good Morning America. Uh, that, we could go on and on with that uh, for some time. He's the author of a brand new book that we want to highly recommend to our listeners called The Gathering Storm, subtitled Secularism, Culture, and the Church. And we look forward to taking the next few minutes to unpack some of this really terrific book. Dr. Moeller, you've done a great job with this, both at the 35,000-foot level the, the big ideas, but also at the level of the details uh, in terms of what's current uh, out there in, in the news and in the courts uh, and in popular culture. So welcome. Really delighted to have you with us. Well, Scott, thank you so much. I appreciate you and uh, your good work and also, of course, uh, the work uh, that uh, Sean uh, does and the two of you together on this podcast. So it's a real honor for me to, to be with you. I think these issues are just incredibly important especially as Christians seek to be faithful in these uh, very strange times. Now, you, the title from the book, uh, Dr. Muller, comes from a very powerful story that you introduced the book with from, from Winston Churchill. Can you share what inspired the title of The Gathering Storm out of Churchill's experience in World War II? You know, Scott, it, it's, uh, it's really very personal, because uh, I, I wrote a, uh, a little paper on uh, Winston Churchill when I was about 13, and was assigned to write a paper on an historic uh, character. And uh, Churchill just really came alive in, in my eyes. And, you know, I was born in 1959, so 14 years after the end of the Second World War. But I'm, I'm surrounded by people, uh, uncles, neighbors, and all the rest, and, and a Holocaust survivor across the street who, uh, who were living World War II. And, uh, and, and what surprised me, even as a 13-year-old kid, was the fact that everyone should have seen this coming, and no one seemed to do anything. Uh, but, but about the time I was uh, kind of, you know, coming into uh, teenage years and thinking about uh, these big questions, uh, they were in my neighborhood. And uh, I, I just could not understand. Uh, but neither could Winston Churchill, who became, of course, prime minister, uh, even as uh, the, the Second World War was in its er earliest weeks. And they turned to Winston Churchill because he was the only person who told the truth. Uh, and prophetically so, for a matter of, uh, of about a decade. And uh, when Churchill wrote his history, The Second World War, he uh, entitled the first volume of that six-volume work, The Gathering Storm. And it's an excruciating work. It's an entire volume in which you can now sense that, uh, that, that what is happening is that people are denying what's right before their eyes. And it, it came with horrific consequences. And, and so I just wanted to help do what Churchill did, and that was to help connect the dots so that the gathering storm could be explained, so people could know what it's really all about. And so I just borrowed it from uh, Sir Winston Churchill, 
And uh, I, I think the title has just has a great deal to do with where we're living right now. Well, I think both um, the, the title, I think, is particularly appropriate, uh, especially given the, the context in which we are, in which we're in today, uh, because I think you both in the book, you both uh, connect the dots, but you also sound an alarm uh, that that the church and the culture need to see uh, this gathering storm for what it is. So tell yeah, American Evan, for, for, excuse me. Go ahead. No, I just uh, I think it's just profoundly true that American evangelicalism is used to uh, having the cultural wind uh, uh, at its back. We're used to having uh, a position of uh, admiration and cultural influence, and uh, and we, we've sensed, I think, most evangelicals sense uh, a very significant change in the cultural context. But they don't know where it came from, and they don't know why it's so powerful, and they don't know where it's going. I think that that's what Churchill tried to explain in his first volume. That's, that's what I've tried to explain in this book. The subtitle of it is Secularism, Culture, and the Church. Just trying to say that this is what explains the storm. Yeah, we, we feel those headwinds, particularly in the state of California here. Um, so let's, for, for our listeners who may not be familiar with some of the terms, tell it, the, the gathering storm you refer to as secularism. What, what do you mean by secularism and its, and its cohort termed secularization? Yeah, you know, for a long time in the United States, we, we really thought that we were the, the cultural exception. But secularization is what the, uh, the early sociologists said would happen as the modern age, age would dawn, as uh, human beings would dam rivers and, you know, uh, divide the atom and uh, gain control over uh, the, the entire natural order. Uh, and uh, and 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 define reality in our own terms. Uh, they, they said, "What will recede is belief in God," and they they actually meant just about every form of religion. Turned out they were wrong. Strange forms of religion have persisted, but it's theism that that has been in decline. You look at Western Europe; theism has been in decline now for uh, almost a century. And uh, the binding authority—that's what I define secularization as. It's it, it's it, it's the loss of the binding authority of theism. And uh, secularism is different because secularization was described as a process, but secularism is an ideology. And, and the reason why it's secularism that's on the title of the book and right there on the cover is because what is really significant right now is that the culture is aligning itself, uh, or at least the, uh, the commanding heights, as Lenin would say, of the culture are aligning themselves according to a very aggressive agenda and ideology of seeking to expunge the influence of uh, of any binding theism. Now, you you describe this as something that is uh, particularly taking hold in the institution, the elite institutions of influence in the culture. Even though the the average person on the street probably wouldn't identify him, himself or herself as secular, uh, what specifically convinces you that this? this gathering storm of secularism is overtaking the U.S. Can we be a little more specific about that? Yeah. So, uh, for instance, uh, j- just uh, uh, looking at the culture and its its hottest fronts right now, there's, there's no doubt that uh, the LGBTQ issues are just front and center. And uh, they didn't come out of, you know, nothing. They didn't come out of a vacuum. They came out of a general renegotiation of uh, of morality that uh, Western societies have have been involved in for the last century. But in order to do that, you've got to get rid of the moral order that exists. And, and that's what I think most American Christians just don't recognize, that the people who are trying to 
and very successfully seeking to change the morality, can only do so if they displace the, uh, the Christian structure of morality. And, and, and the way they're doing that is by saying, look, it's patriarchal, it's oppressive, it's a, it, it's a, it's, it's a part of a, a giant system of oppression, and the only way we can liberate humanity is to be rid of it. And, uh, and being rid of it is basically now uh, just the assumption of most of the uh, elite academic institutions. And, and as you well know, as a, as a significant academic leader, you know, lesser institutions just uh, model themselves on the greater institutions of prestige. And so right now, I mean, the chance that, and let me, let me get concrete, Scott, the chance that uh, a convictional evangelical Christian could be appointed to an English department in a major American university right now is, uh, is very low. I think, yeah, we, uh, we, we interviewed the, the British critic, uh, Helen Pluckrose, not too long ago, and she called herself, oh, yeah. she called herself an exile from the humanities. Even though she she's an atheist, yeah. but still holds to things like objective truth and objective morality, and found herself yeah. found herself completely on the outs uh, in terms of her academic discipline and field. You know, the interesting thing here is that many of these people would say, "No, we we, we don't ask. Are you an evangelical Christian? We we don't discriminate that way. We 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 wouldn't do that." What uh, what is really happening is uh, is increasingly the requirement of positive moral affirmation. Which, uh, which, so it works this way. So you, you bring, you have a, a, a faculty search or an executive search and you bring someone in and uh, what you require of them is to make a positive affirmation, for example, of the new morality and particularly of, uh, you know, LGBTQ issues, or you could go down the, the list of uh, current frontline moral concerns. And the failure to make that positive uh, declaration just means you're, you're, <laughs> your application gets uh, thrown in the wastebasket. They don't say it's because you're a Christian, but it's because no one who's holding to a biblical worldview can uh, can make the affirmation that they require. I think this is one of the reasons why I, I've argued with my students for a long time that uh, there's a new absolutism that has taken over in the culture. Uh, and the things like the cancel culture, uh, that if you if you are out of step with the prevailing secular ideology of the general culture, uh, the consequences are much more severe than they were, you know, even even ten years ago. Uh, how do, how do you how do you account for that? No, that is a, that's a key insight. It's one of the things that I'm trying to underline these days, and and probably in a way that. Uh, <laughs> that I'll have to put in the new book. Uh, and uh, it comes down to answering the question, what kind of pressure is most effective? And, you know, I think social capital pressure is, it turns out to be the most effective pressure point. And, and I mean, it, it comes down to the fact that you don't get to sit with the cool kids in the cafeteria. You know, if you hold anything close to an historic Christian worldview, uh, you're just not going to be with the pretty people. You're you're not going to be with the uh, uh, the the people who are in. You're going to be an out, and you know that's an enormous social pressure. And there's a sense in which conservative evangelical Protestants have always known. You know, look, we, we we've never sat at the high table, but at least at least we were in the room. But increasingly, we're being told, no, now you're not going to be in the room. And uh, so. You know, I, you mentioned that social pressure and, and, and you know, uh, Rod Dreher calls this a soft totalitarianism. And, and I had a conversation with him uh, on my thinking in public broadcast. And I, I simply said, look, I understand what you mean, but there is no such thing as soft totalitarianism. The end result is totalitarianism and it's not soft. 
But I understand what he means. It's uh, it's social uh, marginalization and cancellation that's the big power now. And and it, look, fourteen year olds feel it in this society. Yeah, I think in- increasingly, uh, what our students tell us is that they feel like they are exiles in their own neighborhoods uh, and in their own yeah. in their own cities. Um, for you know, for some for some of the views that are are part of historic Christian orthodoxy that are no longer in cultural vogue today. And that's a long list, isn't it? It is. I mean, so, you know, it, it used to be that uh, evangelical Christians were uh, on the college campus. I can remember this when, when I went to a secular university, a major secular university for a year as an 18-year-old. And I can still remember that it wasn't just, you know, seven-day creationism that was absolutely rejected. It's any belief in divine creation or design, period. And it used to be issues like that. But now it, it's 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 a list that is so long that uh, that even the left can't keep up with it. So you know, even the older liberals are finding themselves uh, on the wrong side of history. So when when you just when you describe this secular storm, um, I, I take it that's a that's more of a, an American and European phenomenon that you're describing. Uh, would you say that that's also true in places, say, south of the equator or in the developing world? Uh, or is that a more uniquely Western thing? Well, th- that's that's a very good question. And I, I would say answering the question, uh, as best I know, it's uh, it's everywhere that European culture uh, exists. <laughs> It's everywhere that European culture exerts a really strong uh, influence. And so, uh, yeah, if, if, if uh, you look to Australia, New Zealand, uh, you know, I know that's not primarily what you mean. Uh, but wh- where you look at uh, where, where you have westernized, uh, highly industrialized, technologically advanced cultures and economies, you see that. But to get to your point, I think increasingly it is showing up uh, in uh, in what Ross Douthat calls, you know, the, the Zambezi line, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not just crossing the Rhine now, it's crossing the Zambezi, you know, th- these Western ideas. And I see evidence of that when I look at uh, some of the uh, concerns that are coming to me from uh, Christians in the, uh, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa and in, uh, in Latin America. And they're saying, look, the problem is our people come back from your universities and they bring all these toxins with them. And so I, I think just given globalization, given social media, given the power of communications, uh, all this is taking place in a faster time frame uh, in the global south. So, Dr. Moeller, one of the places I think in the book that's, that's one of the most compelling stories is uh, your discussion of the uh, the fire that uh, that almost destroyed the most recognizable cathedral in the world at Notre Dame, and you you make a you you tell a story about secularization based on that that, that experience uh, of the the fire at Notre Dame. Tell our listeners a little bit about how you connect those two. Yeah, you know, uh, the site of Notre Dame Cathedral on fire is was just heartbreaking uh, because I- I- anyone who knows the history of uh, of Western civilization, of just of, of world history, knows that that's not just another historic building in the history of Christianity. That 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 particular cathedral has, at many turns in uh, not only French history but uh, but our history, played an outsized role. It really represented the uh, the, the the great uh, establishment of Christendom 
uh, and uh, the unitary understanding of truth that marked the medieval world. But the French Revolution also uh, had to tell part of its story inside that cathedral, uh, an explicitly godless revolution, an explicitly secularist revolution. And of course, they, they took out the, uh, the statue of the Virgin Mary and put in a statue of a goddess reason. And uh, it's just, it's, it's fascinating that when, the, by the time that that cathedral burned, it wasn't even owned by the Roman Catholic Church. It was owned by the people of France as a secular trust. They just let the priests, you know, do their thing inside that cathedral. And uh, of course, it was a great tourist attraction. But it's fascinating, even since uh, the, the, the book's been published, Scott, the uh, director of the program to rebuild Notre Dame Cathedral had to make a public statement that so far as he was concerned, Notre Dame should continue as a church. And you just think about that. You know, what else would it be? But in a country that is now so secular that less than 2% of people attend religious services in a given year in a city like Paris, the reality is, if you're going to spend all those millions of dollars to rebuild it in an increasingly secular society hostile to Christianity, why would you make it a church? It's just fascinating that that became an open question, and still is, by the way. Yeah, amazing that that would actually have to be declared. That it's, it's still And it's not a settled issue. You know, it, 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 it's not yet a settled issue. I, I think it probably will be a church, but uh, the question then is for how long? Yeah. Now, uh, you throughout the book, you describe the incursions of secularism into various segments of the culture, uh, the family, uh, the, the right to life, the place of religious freedom, uh, gender and sexuality. Uh, a whole host of areas, and we could we could spend the rest of the day going through each of those areas. But I but I want to commend commend the book to our listeners uh, to go through all of those in in detail. And part of part of the merit, I think, of each of those descriptions is how timely the examples are that you give to illustrate the incursion of secularism into these various places in the culture. One of the most disturbing parts to me was in the discussion on the family and the incursion of secularism into the realm of parental rights, uh, particularly in Europe. Uh, tell, tell our listeners a little bit about some, some of the things you've discovered about how parental rights over, over the right to raise children as, as parents see fit is, uh, is being chipped away at uh, by the forces of secularism. Yeah, something fundamental has happened here. So if you go back uh, in uh, just the long story of, uh, of Western civilization, uh, which was birthed out of a, a Christian worldview, not, not, neither of us would say that uh, a crime that everyone was a believing Christian, but Christianity was the only available worldview, morality, reality, creation, meaning. And uh, if, if you go back to that period, which includes well into the experience of the United States, the family, the generative family, mother, father, children uh, that are produced by their union, uh, that is considered a pre-political institution. So much so that when Marx and Engels wrote their Communist Manifesto, they had to go at the family arguing that it was not supposed to be a pre-political institution. In other words, the, the Christian assumption that, that uh, our civilization shared was that the family pre-exists the state and the state has no right to invade the rightful uh, sphere and privilege uh, of the family. 
But the, but that's over now. Now most of the people driving family policy in the United States, and, and and you see these rulings when parents are told that they don't get to say what the gender identity of their child is. They can't uh, prevent a child from undergoing a so-called gender transition. When when you have uh, homeschooling outlawed in uh, in countries like Germany, and I mean not just outlawed by a policy, but outlawed with the force of law, separating children from parents. Uh, You've got a fundamental reshaping. And so now parents are convenient agents of the state so long as the state considers parents convenient. And if parents hold the wrong convictions, then increasingly uh, children are uh, are taken away from parents. And and look, we see that already in Western Europe, as as you underlined from, from the book. Yes, we see that already. And look, you know, uh, just uh, in the course of the last uh, year or so, at uh, at Harvard University, you had a major, very esteemed uh, professor there argue that parents ought not to be assumed to be authoritative in the educational decisions concerning their own children, including preschool age children. So, I mean, that's that these things, these ideas don't stay on the other side of the Atlantic. They come over here pretty fast. Now, in the in the area of sexuality, uh I think one of the questions I think you raise a really insightful question is when it comes to the LGBTQ agenda, where where will it stop? And when, if, if at all, will will the average person in the culture reflect back on this and say, enough? Do you see that day? Do you see that day coming? Well, not yet. Uh, I mean, uh, there's a sense in which, as a Christian theologian, yes, I'm absolutely certain that day will come. But I have no idea uh, how much carnage is between now and then, or, or how much time. But you know, th- this revolution requires two fundamental shifts. One is to dethrone that historic Christian morality, and that's been pretty successful in the culture. But the second thing, and to be honest, Scott, I don't think most Christians saw this coming. And uh, the second thing that happened was making every issue of sexual morality an identity issue. And if you do that, and it's been so successful, then it's not that you oppose what I do, it's that you oppose who I am. Now, the problem with that is that there is no limit to the who I am. And so, for instance, you just take LGBTQ and you look at both T and Q, they're absolutely indeterminate right now. In other words, there's no limit. We're told there's not a gender binary. We're even told that there's no particular reality in the entire gender spectrum. And uh, and and so, you know, I just saw a report from Canada on, uh, you know, transgender abortion rights. You just look at that and you go, OK, there there is no end to this. And and the uh, the, the other thing that, that you see here is that in the Q, which uh, these days it began as questioning, now it's queer, it's the, it's, the, it's the revolutionary embrace of transgressive sexuality. Well, you know, the problem with that is, uh, I mean, let me, let me put it this way, the problem for that movement is that there's no end to transgression. So they have no, in other words, if you destroy uh, the objective morality such that anything is objectively right and everything and anything's objectively wrong and everything's a question of identity, then you have as many different identities, not only as there are human beings on the planet, but as there are seconds in the day. Yeah, this I think this is one of the one, one of the outgrowths of the what you describe as the the destruction of a, a general Judeo-Christian sense of objective morality. Uh, because once once that's gone— Yeah, and by the way, an example— yeah, Go ahead. No, I just want to say, as an example of, of what I'm talking about here, 
the uh, the issue of polygamy is has been reframed by polygamy advocates as now polyamory as an identity. And and so that's exactly the way this works. Okay. So, you know, most Americans hear polygamy, they say that's wrong. But when someone says my identity is as a polyamorous, uh, you know, person, well, I mean, they've successfully changed the argument from what I do to supposedly who I am. And, you know, Anthony Kennedy, uh, famously in the Casey decision back in 1992, actually wrote that into the majority opinion of the Supreme Court, you know, that everyone is uh, is uh, entitled to his or her, those words are outdated, aren't yes. they? Yes. <laughs> uh, to any individual's understanding of reality. And, you know, uh, Antonin Scalia responded to that. He called it the oh, sweet mystery of life clause. But he responded to it saying, there is no limit to that. There is no limit to what anyone may claim to be their reality. There's no boundary on that at let all. Me, let me can help have you connect a couple other dots that I think will be very helpful for our listeners in the, in the chapter on marriage and sexuality, you make, you make a a number of arresting statements there, but one of them is a society that disbelieves in God will eventually disbelieve in marriage. They help, help us connect the dots there. You know, I didn't always see that. Uh, They had kind of a dawning awareness, but marriage is by nature, a limiting institution. And uh, it's always a public institution. The whole point of marriage is that uh, every society has found a way to say, you have an exclusive pair here who are recognized, they're given privileges, uh, they're given rights to each other that aren't given to others. But uh, marriage, it turns out, is just about in every imaginable situation, if it's really marriage, it has a theological dimension. And, you know, Christians have known that from the beginning. And, uh, you know, you go back to the the... Book of Common Prayer, which is what I often like to point to of the Church of England, you know, it points out that this is a covenant made between a, a man and a woman, yes, but it's actually their covenant made with God. And uh, so without that theistic anchor, without that uh, divine anchor to marriage, then marriage is either just redefined, and of course, ever since no-fault divorce, it's just been redefined as a matter of convenience. Uh, but these days, marriage is actually, it's, it, it's increasingly hated. Uh, by the society. And, and I mean, they're not going to come right out and say that, but then again, they, they really are. So, uh, you know, I, I saw a, a, a state document, a document from one of our 50 states that described the problem of heteronormativity. And it had to do with marriage. And, uh, and by the way, uh, I, uh, I have a copy of Louisville Bride on, on my desk right now. Louisville Bride, you may wonder, well, I have it here for a very important reason. It has yeah, a picture I was going to say, you are going to explain why you have that, right? I'm going, I'm going to explain. I'm going to explain why I actually sent an intern in to get it to his own embarrassment. But uh, it, it, it has on the cover two men in an embrace. And the, the title of the magazine is Louisville Bride. But the cover text says, clearly, it's time to change our name. Help us with that. Okay, so now you can't have... Louisville Bride. Okay, it's just a sign of what I was mentioning. You can't have marriage. N- not marriage as any kind of objective, ontological reality grounded in creation and in being. No. Now, you can have marriage if it's just a temporary relationship, but you can't have marriage in any sense that virtually every civilization has recognized it for millennia. Now, Dr. Muller, you have a, also a very insightful chapter on religious liberty here. And I think I know one of the things that befuddles 
a lot of people in the Christian community is this is this notion that the, the allegation that quote religious liberty is just code for bigotry. Uh, how how would you help the church respond to that in a way that's both in, insightful and winsome? Yeah, th- and that's a real challenge, isn't it? To be true and winsome at the same time. We know as Christians that uh, the unity of uh, of all things of all the uh, of all perfections and God means that the the truth and love are actually the same thing. But in, in a fallen world, we we find it uh, quite challenging. Uh, I, I think one of the things to uh, to point out here is that the average person doesn't really think politically in the most general sense, and that is that every society has to come up with its own rules of uh, of conduct, what's acceptable and what's not. And the, the problem for uh, Bible-believing Christians is that we're increasingly, what we believe is, in, is increasingly on the wrong side of what is acceptable and what is not. So, you know, fights over religious liberty in the American founding were, uh, were classic debates over religious liberty. The debates over religious liberty now are largely uh, questions as to whether or not Christians can exercise Christianity in any form in, in public consequence. And uh, or for that matter, it's not even public anymore to make the point, you, you know, even in teaching your own children or making their decision, uh, making decisions about their education or discipline or teaching. And uh, and so as, as you look at this, religious liberty is put in quotation marks in the press these days. I, I had three examples of it just yesterday in which religious liberty is put in scare quotes as if it's not really a thing, but that's what Christians claim. And so I don't have a great answer, Scott, I'll admit, about how to do this uh, winsomely uh, and convincingly. Uh, but that's our challenge. And so as winsomely as I can be and as convincingly as I can be, I'm trying to make the case for the fact that religious liberty is necessary uh, as a precondition of other liberties. So, uh, and, and by the way, uh, one of the strange things that has come out of this is the acknowledgement on the part of Christians that uh, religious liberty really means conscience liberty in, in the sense that uh, there is a, there's a, Freedom that is not just expressed in public faith—that's that's crucial—but in also in the private sphere. And uh, you know, I think one of the things that we have to do is show the wreckage of what happens when religious liberty is denied. And and by the way, if religious liberty is denied, the founders of our own you know experiment and ordered liberty understood that every other liberty will also fall because if if one is not free to express one's deepest convictions, then one's more subsequent convictions can certainly be dispensed with. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's fair to make the argument that if, if you are not free to express your deepest convictions, you're not free at all. Absolutely. I mean, that, 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 and that's, that, that, that's something that even someone like a Thomas Jefferson would eagerly affirm. Yeah, I think most, yeah, I think most of the founders, though, their, you know, what their, their religious convictions were all over the map. Uh, I think they correctly understood that as the first freedom and most fundamental freedom for the reasons that you suggested. Yeah, one of the interesting things about that, yeah, now Scott, you're exactly right. Their uh, their theological convictions were all over the map. But one of the things that, that's interesting to think about is the fact that whatever they understood about religious liberty, they understood the fact that they wanted every single one of those uh, people and their beliefs represented with full freedom of expression and liberty in the American experiment. And, uh, and so the, the fact, actually the fact that they were all over the place theologically points to the fact they really did believe in religious liberty. Dr. Moeller, one, one final question here. Um, what 
what advice would you have for the church? Or what's what would be one big one big recommendation you would make f- to the church for how maybe how not to respond to the rise of secularism, and then how to respond to it? Yeah, I think that that's another great question, Scott. I I, I think that. Uh, the worst Christian responses are grounded in fear. And uh, the, the, the hardest commandment Jesus may have given us is fear not, uh, because it's so counterintuitive. And uh, so people often say, well, you know, don't say fear not after you wrote this book. Well, you know, hey, I, the church is told fear not after the book of Revelation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, we, uh, we, we, we aren't to live in fear. Fear produces uh, a defensiveness and a, uh, uh, a, a suspicion that uh that that just isn't healthy it's like i tell people look you don't have to hold to a conspiracy theory uh because the secular elites are telling us exactly what they want to do you don't you don't have to go say you don't have to go to some internet bulletin board to figure out what they're saying they're saying it right at the right out loud in the pages of the new york times uh but uh here's the thing the most powerful message on earth is the gospel of jesus christ and the most powerful institution on earth, the only one that's going to survive this age, is the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, the most powerful bond on earth is the bond between a husband and a wife in marriage and between parents and their children, and we just need to lean into that. And uh, eventually, we either believe our theology or not. Either we believe that those, those realities are more powerful and more enduring than uh, everything the world claims and controls, or we don't. I, I actually think that uh, they're much more powerful than everything else the world controls. That, that's a that's a terrific word for our listeners here. Do do we really believe the theological convictions that we say we believe? Uh, and maybe if maybe if we did and live them out more consistently, secularism would not be on the rise like it is today. Uh, I, Dr. Muller, I want to thank you for coming on with us and for your book. I want to commend to our listeners your book, The Gathering Storm. Subtitle: Secularism, Culture in the Church. It is a rich resource uh, of of just things that we need to be aware of as thinking Christians who are engaging in an increasingly secular culture. So we're very very grateful for your time today. Uh, thanks so much for coming on with us, and I will uh, I will give Sean your best. Well, Dr. Ray, thank you. It's been a privilege to be with you, and uh, really appreciate the the insightful conversation. And uh, please uh, tell Sean that I missed him, but I'm very thankful to have had this conversation with you today, and I hope your listeners find it helpful. Well, I'm, I'm sure they will. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. L. Moeller, in his book, The Gathering Storm, And to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and feel free to share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.